0: is Pop Poetry Podcast and I'm Robert and I'm Tim. Each week we read a poem and talk about it.
1: Today's guest is John Muller. John will be reading The Song of Wandering Angus by William Butler Yeats.
2: You want a poem? There you go. The Song of Wandering Angus. I went out to the hazel wood, because a fire was in my head, and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread. And when white moths were on the wing, and moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped the berry in a stream and caught a little silver trout. When I had laid it on the floor, I went to blow the fire aflame, but something rustled on the floor, and someone called me by my name. It had become a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair. Who called me by my name and ran And faded through the brightening air Though I am old with wandering Through hollow lands and hilly lands I will find out where she has gone And kiss her lips and take her hands And walk among long dappled grass And pluck till time and times are done The silver apples of the moon The golden apples of the sun John, what first attracted you to this poem? It's the sort of poem that Grabs you on first read. I think it's uh, you know it's a very simple sounding musical poem, um, but it has a surprising amount of depth to it. And despite its its economy, it, it creates this entire myth in a few short lines. And, and I was attracted to to the mystery of it, to how he creates these effects um, with such economy, and how he tells a story that, that stays in your head long after you've breezed through these three short stanzas.
0: I went out to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head. It's a strange thing. What's a what's it mean to have a fire in your head? It's got you already, right? On yeah. the second line.
2: Um, actually, I'd like to talk about the title a little bit before we get into the lines, if that's okay with you guys. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Uh, because this... I think there's a lot to unpack just in the title. First of all, it's a song, right? And it's song-like. Uh, when you read it, it's, it's musical, it's, it's sturdy, it's written in this loose, iambic tetrameter uh, that flows very well. In fact, if you Google the title of this song, the first thing that comes up is this really terrible rendition that the folk singer Donovan did in 1971. I don't recommend it. But it's proof of concept, right, that this works as a song. It's three stanzas, eight lines of stanza, uh, A, B, C, B, rhyme scheme, you know, repeated throughout. So it's, it's very much like a folk song, and I think that Yeats wrote it with that in mind. And in fact, I'll talk about later, he, he claims to have been inspired by a folk song when he wrote this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm also interested in Wandering Angus himself. Um, but even something as simple as the preposition of, that is, it's a song of Wandering Angus. Is it a song about Wandering Angus? Is it Wandering Angus' song? And I think that how we read that preposition affects what we expect from the poem. That is, if it's Wandering Angus' song, we might expect a personal lament, uh, you know, something expressing his, his own travails, and yet if we read it as a song about Wandering Angus, we expect something to happen. We expect folklore of some kind, and as we find reading the poem, we get both, right? It works as both a personal lament and... A legend of sorts. Wandering, I think, is important because we're not sure whether the wandering starts over the course of this poem. You know, we have what looks like a guy going out on a journey, but was he wandering before? Is this something, you know, intrinsic to his character? I'm not sure.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then finally, there's there's Angus. Uh, who exists in, in Irish folklore uh, as this a member of a mythological race who may or may not be a god? You know, there are some associations that I think that Irish readers would bring to the poem just from that name. And yet, Yeats isn't telling us an, a well-known Irish myth. He's, he's writing a story. Uh, so he may actually be subverting some of the associations that people would have with this name. Mm-hmm. So do you
1: read the, the I in the first line as
2: Angus? As Angus speaking? Yeah. I think we have to, right? Um, if, if the first-person narrator is not Angus, then it's hard to say exactly how this would be a song of wandering Angus, right? Yeah. So does
1: that... I mean, does that sort of take a couple of the possible readings of the preposition of off the table? If, like if it is, if the I in the poem is Angus, then can we say it's his song, he's singing it?
2: No, I. in fact, I think that the first person is, is what opens up that second possibility of this being uh, a personal poem as well as a legend.
0: But you asked about the first lines. Yeah, it also seems to concur with the title that he's going out into the woods and he's a wanderer. He's a vagabond of sorts who uh, has a fire in my head. What, any ideas? What's it mean to be a fire, to be constantly moving flocks? Yeah, that's that's the line that
2: grabs you the... The word fire, just the sound of the word, really jumps out after the the very gentle hazel wood because a fire was in my head. and There is, I think, a very prosaic reading that we could apply to this line. Uh, He was thinking of a fire, that is, he, he went to the wood, perhaps with the intention of building a fire. But I, and I think a lot of other readers, are inclined to a different reading. That is, that the fire is some sort of psychological state. There's, there's something going on in him, some kind of turmoil that drove him to this wood. That second line, you obviously can't hear it on here, but it's offset with commas. It's, it's a parenthetical. Angus feels like he has to explain himself as though he needed some reason to go out to the wood. But beyond the word fire and its associations, we're not told anything about what this could mean if it does describe a psychological
0: state. Yeah, I'm not sure if he's wandering randomly or if it's as if something is calling him there, even if it's his psychological state or nature is calling him uh, and why would a fire belong in a wood? that seems to be a recipe for um uh, <laughs> potential disaster maybe right. but also a nice uh a nice sort of afternoon
1: in the woods or like you know it does sort of seem like he's going out into the woods to have like a fishing trip a a picnic or something and because in the the description we get of what he does when he gets out there follows and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread and when white moths were on the wing and moth-like stars were flickering out I dropped the berry in a stream and caught the little silver trout so if it is a fire that's causing him to go out into the woods um, you know, the desire to go and build a fire it's Striking that the first thing he does is not go build a fire, but go fishing.
2: Yeah, and you were inclined, you know, knowing this the scenario that he winds up fishing here, you assume that he would go out in the afternoon. And yet we find out in this first stanza that that's not what's happening, that he's fishing at night in the woods, which seems like a strange thing to do, right? Whatever it was that drove him there seems to have been very urgent and probably not very planned. He doesn't take... A fishing rod with him. I've read Angus described as a fisherman, but he doesn't really seem like a fisherman in this stanza. He seems like a guy who went to the Hazelwood and it occurred to him to fish. Although he does have at least fishing hooks with him, so, you know, he has that much preparation.
0: Also, maybe the fire, sometimes you're in civilization and there's so many inputs on your mind and it's chaotic in your head and you just got to go out and fish and go into nature for a couple days and just let it simmer down to relax the fire, not to expand the fire necessarily. Yeah, I think
2: that's a compelling reading that he was driven away from this fire and into a more peaceful setting. I'm curious about what the significance of the hazelwood itself is, Um, if you pull up hazel trees on Wikipedia, there's in fact a section devoted to a Celtic myth about a ring of hazel trees around a pond that drop their nuts into the water. The nuts are eaten by salmon, and the salmon absorb the wisdom that's supposed to inhere in these trees by eating the nuts. And I wonder whether readers are supposed to pick up on that association. Only readers very well versed in Wikipedia, I think.
0: <laughs> the ones who've done their deep research, yeah. yeah. Well, here we see a berry dropped in the stream. Not a nut, but uh, and he catches something, and the silver trout. Uh, we also see in imagery white moths were on the wing. Does that mean they're f- just flying around on the wing?
2: Yeah, so he he gets out to the wood, he cuts and peels a hazel wand. Now, a hazel wand doesn't seem like a very sturdy instrument for fishing, right? This all still feels very ad hoc. Uh, he manages to hook a berry onto a thread, again, not a fishing line. Um, and berries don't seem like the best bait to catch trout. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, I've I've gone deep into Wikipedia for this and trout mostly eat other fish <laughs> they, they do also eat insects um, which is why fly fishermen love to fish for trout but you wonder whether plunking a berry into a stream is really a likely way to catch a trout or any fish at all so there's something I think already a little bit magical just in the way that he's set up his, his fishing expedition he seems to expect this unlikely fishing rig and this improbable bait to bring him something. And then we're introduced to the time element. When white moths were on the wing, now we're at night. We're no longer in the afternoon as we might have expected. Is that because of the moth-like stars? Well, we, we get confirmation through the moth-like stars, certainly, but when do moths come out? Um. I I don't know, from Jersey, they're just kind (laughs) of always flying around, (laughs) piles of trash and such. Well, here in New Mexico, there are white
0: moths that do come out at night and buzz around our lights. Is that dangerous for white moths? Because they're out of there. Like, would it be easier for predators to find them?
2: If they're out at night?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I think
2: uh, I think that's just what moths do. I think I think they go out and hunt at night. Why being wa- white is not dangerous for them, I don't know. But that line is very—it's—it's it's the most poetic in that we have this alliteration. We have these uh, what's what's the phonetic word for it? Approximants are what we call W sounds. When white were wing. And if you say it with a little bit of behind it, you get the sound of the moths fluttering around. When white moths were on the wing. Yeah, if you do it Andy Sambury style, yeah, Yeah. it all makes sense. (laughs) And then we have moth-like stars. What does it mean for stars to be moth-like?
1: Well, that's just just pretty. That's just a, a really
2: pretty image right there. It is beautiful, but does it make sense? How do we make it make sense?
0: Well, they're white images on a dark background mm-hmm. at night, mm-hmm. so, and they, they f- just, you kind of see them, they stick out naturally. Yeah. And in the same way
2: that moths, as they open and close their wings, tend to appear and disappear, these stars are not just twinkling, they're flickering out. That is, they seem to almost disappear. And the moth-like stars implies a kind of movement as well, right? Is Angus just seeing these stars move across the sky in their normal celestial arcs? Or is there something, again, magical about these stars kind of swirling around him, some Van Gogh situation going on overhead? Mm -hmm. But for me, it's the temporal element. It's it's knowing that this is happening at night that makes that fire seem especially urgent, that makes Angus himself seem especially odd. (laughs) Yeah. I know that fishing at night is something that people do, and yet, because this trip is so poorly planned, I'm I'm just compelled by this image of of this lone, possibly inexperienced fisherman wandering through a dark forest in search of something. And that is Angus's defining characteristic, right? Throughout this poem, he's in search of, of something, and he doesn't always seem to know what it is that he's looking for. So he's got the
1: trout... When I had laid it on the floor, I went to blow the fire aflame. But something rustled on the floor, and someone called me by my name.
2: For me, what's interesting in these lines is the way that we go from it and something to someone. In those third and fourth lines of this stanza, the transition from something to someone contains the entire transformation just in the difference of pronouns before we're even
0: told what's going on with the fish. To blow the fire aflame. That's the fire in his head. The same fire. Seems to be. And he thinks he can... If you blow on a fire, it grows. It gets oxygen. Mm -hmm. But uh, why why does he want to uh, increase the fire?
1: So... uh, Is this the same fire? I mean, I thought we had some resolution on reading the fire in line two as something he could have been getting away
2: from to go into the woods and build a different kind of fire. Unless we're attracted to the reading that the fire was his plan all along, that the fire in his head is the fire that he's now blowing a flame.
0: Or maybe it had simmered out when he's fishing, but now that he's got... The fish on the floor And I guess he's gonna Cook it Cook it and eat it He's gotta get the fire going again Mm -hmm. And remember uh, You know I actually have to Work Yeah Yeah Right (laughs) So we need the fire You can't extinguish the fire But there are times when you can Let it be embers And coals But then You gotta put a couple more logs on the sucker Mm -hmm. In your head
2: but the image of blowing the fire flame, you know, the the way that you can perfectly picture these these embers kind of flaring into light seems to me to be very consistent with the moths themselves in the presumably moonlight. Although it's interesting that Yeats never mentions the moon in the first stanza, and yet you picture it perfectly, right? The moonlight on the stream, on the moth's wings. That's what I mean when I talk about the economy of this poem that he creates images without even bothering. Words like silver and white give you the entire scene.
1: Yeah. the Certainly the sil- the little silver trout. You, I could only picture that in the moonlight. Because trouts aren't exactly silver. I assume yeah. you've seen them. I don't know if they have them in Jersey. but Yeah, I think they're mostly green there. <laughs> Off
2: shades of blue and yellow. Yeah. Or, or is the silver trout... You know, silver in some, in some more literal sense. That is, is it made of silver? That would be consistent with the kind of folkloric tale that we're telling here. And it resonates certainly with the silver apples of the moon that we get at the end of the poem. Here we have this trout in the moonlight, and it's silver. Mm. I also like, at the beginning of the second stanza... When I had laid it on the floor, I went to blow the fire aflame. We're very much in Angus's head. We're seeing what he's seeing, And we're surprised, as he is, when we hear this rustling behind us. Right? This this noise. He's alone. He's got what he
0: thinks is a dead fish lying on the floor behind him. And suddenly there's noise. Mm -hmm. Do we know it's dead? Because I can... Picture the image of a live fish flapping around on the floor, mm-hmm. perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
2: doesn't seem like Angus took his, you know, cooler out with him so that he could bring the fish home alive, right? <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah. yeah. And
1: regardless, <laughs> it's going to get weird when that fish starts calling out his name. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. At first, maybe maybe the fl- the fish is just flopping. Maybe it's it's not as dead as he thought it was. And yet, suddenly, the something is a someone. And not only is it a someone, but it's someone who knows Angus's name. Yeah. And then we get the big reveal after the colon, right? It had become a
1: glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair. Well, I guess maybe we can talk about, um, just we can stop there and just talk about her, the thing that this trout has become. The someone, not the something the someone um, a glimmering girl with a- apple blossom in her hair what uh, glimmering is another
2: moonlight kind of very much so yeah word yeah flickering and glimmering there's there's a connection here and the types of light the Yates is applying to the scene and yet it's the girl herself glimmering right. She's already inside whatever kind of structure Angus is building this fire in. So is the moonlight glimmering off her? Is it the fire? Or is there something in her? Is her skin somehow glimmering intrinsically? I mean, mostly glimmering girl is just a very nice phrase, right? Yeah. There's a lot of music in those letters. I'd like to hear Donovan (laughs) sing that. No, you wouldn't. No. (laughs) Not recommended. (laughs) Yeah, Glimmering Girl with Apple Blossom in Her Hair. And again, I think that this apple in this line uh, is something that we'll be drawn back to when we get to the end of the poem. At the end of the poem, apples are the sun and the moon. that is, they are time itself. And this girl has apple blossoms in her hair. That is, she's literally in the flower of her youth. We have a temporal element as well as just this you know, nice, lyrical, possibly folkloric image.
0: Is it at least possible that since his fire has got going, this girl is a figment of his imagination, that he's, he just has this image of maybe a lost love or a romantic... Uh, desire that is being manifested out of a fish, and does that compelling to anyone?
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. the okay. The status of the girl is very much in question for me, um, and and should be right. We can't just assume that this is folklore. When someone tells me their fish turned into a girl, I start to wonder what kind of reality we're in here (laughs) the fact that this entire scene happens at night that it begins and ends in his cabin or whatever it is makes me wonder if he's even awake for any of this and we see that at the end of this stanza the glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air So he reiterates that she's calling him by his name. This is somehow very important to him. That she, or what used to be it, knows him in some way. But she doesn't really seem like she wants to have a conversation, right? No. So
1: if this were something like a dream state, I don't think we would be allowed to ask why why she ran away. That's one of those things you just kind of accept in a dream. Fish turned into a girl, girl
0: ran away, and then I woke up or something like that. Well, the, the air is brightening, which means, I guess, day, daylight is coming. And the moon or the fire, it's not glimmering off her anymore. And then she just goes away.
2: Right. Is she fading because of distance? Is she fading because of daylight? Is, is this something that just vanishes in the daylight? Is the girl still real at the end of this stanza, right? Or has she disappeared or left us for a spirit world? Obviously, Yates is very interested in the spirit world. But she seems to want him to follow her. When you call someone's name and run away, you expect them to come after you. Mm-hmm. Where is she going, and why does she want him to come with her? Well, I guess we'll see if uh,
1: we get to answer that question in the final stanza. Though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she
2: has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands. I love the jump cuts between the stanzas. That is, between the first and second stanza were immediately transported from the wood back into Angus's home. Between the second stance and the third, almost an entire lifetime has passed. Suddenly, Angus is old. So anyone who is reading this poem expecting Angus to be some sort of immortal Irish mythological figure has to deal with the fact that this young man is aging. He's old with wandering. in pursuit of this girl, presumably. So you're
1: imagining that time has passed, and in that time, that's when he was doing his wandering, is between the second and the third stanza, that we're, we're getting sort of, in the first two stanzas, the an account of why he started wandering, and then in the third stanza, um, the effect of a life of wandering.
2: That's certainly how I read this poem at first. The more I think about it, the less sure I am that he wasn't wandering before the poem began, that the fire in his head isn't some sort of
0: permanent thing that he's constantly trying to get away from. And what what his fire burns for isn't in this world of hollow lands. It's in this spirit world. It's faded away. But his fire is still burning for this beauty, poetic muses, whatever's in this other world. And he he can't get it. He just wants to, to be with this girl. Yeah, and why does he want to be with this girl? He
2: knows nothing about her except that she used to be a fish. And she knows his name. Why would that compel you to spend your entire life looking for this person? Was she that beautiful? That mysterious. She was the
1: fish that got away. <laughs> he was gonna. He was gonna eat her that night. He had the fire already, and then uh, she she
0: wandered off into the spirit world. <laughs> she is the one that got away. I will find out where she has gone. He just has to know what happened. There's this mystery, and he's a detective who has to solve it, and then kiss it <laughs> and hold her hand. Yeah. He's Take her hand. He's, he's very determined, and yeah. he seems
2: sure of himself still. If I had spent my entire life wandering in search of something and hadn't found it, I don't think that I would say I will find it. Is that just a statement of determination, or is there some sort of real certainty behind this? And if he's certain, why is he certain? Given that the last time we saw the girl, she seemed to be literally disappearing before our eyes. It seems odd to expect that you would find her at all. Who knows where she is or if she is, that she exists anymore. Is this an expectation of finding something after death? Is that why he feels so certain? But it's not... I mean,
1: that I will is not just the, about certainty. It's, this is an act of willing. I... I have determined that I will find her it doesn't necessarily mean that you believe you will find her it just means that this is my will i will try i will make this my life's work
2: i think that's cheating a little bit with the equivocation of the word will but you're right that saying i will do something can just be a statement of determination of you know not of certainty but of a drive mm-hmm.
0: It's it's also a possibility that there is a touch of madness to this person, and he's a touch. Okay, he just saw a fish turn into a person. That sounds like more than a touch to me. Well, he he, he uh, point taken. But uh, he's he's having visions. He's chasing this myth, Angus seems mad, but it doesn't really seem mad. It seems like a beautiful endeavor, too, on the other hand.
2: Yeah, it does. It seems beautiful and, and natural in some way. That is, as crazy as the whole scenario seems, I don't know that I would feel crazy if I went and pursued this this beautiful, ethereal thing throughout my life. And is that beautiful, ethereal thing the girl herself? That is, should we read this as, as a poem about... Love about desire about I think you suggested earlier something about this
0: mental fire or
2: no about about youthful beauty about like right, a, a right. lost poetry. a lost love maybe poetry may, maybe the girl is an ideal maybe she's a person certainly in this last stanza she reads as a person he seems to want real romantic consummation with her
1: mm. and there's something. That, John, I think you've mentioned a few times that Yeats is doing, that makes the, the first reading of this poem, it makes me very sympathetic to say that, saying that there's magic going on, rather than this is a crazy person. So like, yeah, of course, you might think of this guy as being insane, but Yeats is doing something that makes me, on first read, not say he's insane, but that this is like a magical, folkloric tale.
2: Yeah, he's, he's very good at putting us in a folkloric world that is a world that has all the trappings of the everyday,
0: but magic and myth seem inextricable from it. And walk among long-dappled grass, and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun.
2: So here we've had three lines in a row start with and, and we had that in the first stanza as well. He uses this sort of King James Bible technique of repeating ands to drive the narrative. Uh, We only have one but, and that's when the transformation occurs. And kiss her lips and take her hands and walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done. There's a semicolon in there between and kiss her lips and take her hands and and walk among long dapple grass is he walking with her now or did he just find her and move on when he's walking among the long dapple grass and plucking till time and times are done it's no longer clear that she's with him
0: why would he still be plucking if she were with him it seems like he's still wandering and or maybe he's in the spirit world and just eating the apples there and
2: Yeah, this this is really confusing. This plucking of the apples of the moon and the apples of the sun, it feels very satisfying in a way that I don't think Angus's life has been so far. That is, plucking the apples of the moon and the sun sounds like a very nice way of saying seizing the day. It seems like something that he would do once he's in the state that he wants to be. So I'd I'd like to read this last stanza as him being with the girl
0: that they're plucking these apples together. Is, is he back in the Garden of Eden now? One guy and a girl in a garden, picking apples forever?
2: Well, if you're picking apples, you're not going to stay in the Garden of Eden for long. <laughs> but I wonder about that time and times. Now I'm no longer certain whether he's mortal or immortal. Is this a description of how I'm going to live out the rest of my days, or how I'm going to spend eternity?
1: I thought this was a description of how he was imagining the the life uh, once he finds this girl. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, it doesn't. In a way, this is this is not something that the speaker has. It's something that the speaker hopes to have. So, in a, so it's sort of both eternal and a part of his life in that.
2: Yeah, the the time feels temporal, the times feels eternal, time and times are done. Mm -hmm. The silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. I love imagining this bucket into which we pluck each day and each night and deposit them. These beautiful, precious metals.
0: Yeah, in the the sun, he, he wasn't able to be with her in daylight before but now he can be with her in sun and moon in time and times, so all of them.
2: Yeah, maybe taking her hand is a necessary precursor. Maybe he has to really grip that wrist tight to keep her from running away again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so
1: this is a mermaid kidnap poem.
2: I, I think that's what's going on here, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was I was very curious because I know that Yeats pulls in a lot of, of folklore and mythology to his poems, uh, where this came from, and we've already talked a little bit about uh, the possibility of this this Irish character who's associated with youth and beauty and poetry and that sort of thing that would that would be very appropriate here. Uh, but Yeats himself claimed that he was inspired to write this poem by a Greek folk song, and in the Greek folk song. Uh, A man catches three fish, brings them home to his mother. As his mother is cooking them, they turn into three maidens. Two of the maidens leave. The third stays with him. So, it's sort of the same story, but it's also a much more satisfying one. There's no wandering involved. It's a domestic story. This is very much a a hero-goes-on-a-journey type of story. There's also... Yeats said, I took this Greek folk song and I applied uh, Irish spirits, the spirits that, that live in Ireland, uh, to it. And there's an Irish poem uh, called The White Trout, I think, in which a man catches a, a fish, pierces it, it turns into a maiden, she's bleeding from his arm or from her arm, and he feels so much compassion that he throws her back in the stream, she turns into a trout and swims away. In that story, of course, he never has the maiden, never hopes to. He lets her go. But Angus isn't content with either of those. He can't have domestic bliss, but he can't let her go. He's driven to constantly wander. It's his epithet. He's the wandering Angus. And to me, the fire and the pursuit of this girl, who may or may not be real, both seem to... Speak to this this they seem to be ways to try to articulate what it is that sometimes makes us restless some some undefinable thing that we pursue throughout our lives without any real justification other than it's beautiful it called me by my name mm-hmm. whatever it is I had this one youthful encounter with this beautiful and ineffable thing and I'm going to pursue it throughout
0: my life. Let me ask one more question. Uh, just about this girl, if we know anything about her. She lives in a land of apples, apples of the moon and the sun. She has an apple blossom in her hair. which seems to imply that she's from this, this land of apples. But why, why is she a fish? <laughs> what? why would this person who lives in this apple land be in a fish who chases a berry do we do anything about her background that we can pull out
2: I like this very literal reading of, of an apple land right that he goes into a hazelwood but she lives in, in apple land apple country <laughs> <laughs> this, this orchard somewhere full of metallic apples western New York yeah. No i I think that the girl is meant to be mysterious. I don't think that we're meant to know much about her. I think that we can know that there is a folklore tradition of fish turning into people, and these fish have magical powers. Maybe they even have some wisdom that they've gotten from eating hazelnuts. Who knows? but the the whole essence of the girl is her mystery. Cool. Well, thanks very much, Jan. Uh,
1: we'll have you read the poem one more time. Your
2: own. The Song of Wandering Angus I went out to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head, and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread. And when white moths were on the wing and moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped the berry in a stream and caught a little silver trout. When I had laid it on the floor, I went to blow the fire aflame, but something rustled on the floor and someone called me by my name it had become a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air though i am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands i will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands and walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon the golden apples of the sun all right,
0: John, just some rapid-fire questions for you. Uh, what is one thing essential to living the good life?
2: Oh, so these questions don't have to do with the poem? No. We
0: just ask all the guests.
2: You could say reading Yeats. <laughs> one thing essential to living the good life. Okay, I'll, I'll tie it to the poem. Uh, finding an ideal and pursuing it throughout your life. Home is the good. Home the is, the the is the good.
1: The top is the good. We went on a hike uh, a couple weeks ago, and the whole time John was saying, the top is the good. <laughs> when we got to the top, he said, home is the good.
2: <laughs> a fire is the good. <laughs> that, that actually was. That was part of going home, was building a fire. Building a fire, a fire yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, which, which book has made the largest impact on your life? The Bible. Is there a specific part, a specific character or quote that resonated with you?
2: No, it's it's the breadth and complexity of the thing that has made it so influential. Uh, the different parts of it, or even different aspects, different ways of reading the same story over and over throughout my life. And of course all the cultural weight
0: that that brings with it that's made it so influential. So any scene that caused that resonance for you?
2: Are you asking me what my favorite part of the Bible is? Sure. One of my favorite parts of the Bible is... Christ on the cross in which gospel is it Matthew where he cries out my God my God why have you forsaken me in Aramaic but it's an allusion of course to the Psalms which are supposed to have been written by David who has his own story and his story ties into the heritage of the entire Old Testament dating back to the Pentateuch it's the intertextuality of it the the cultural weight uh, as I said that that A few lines can open up a thousand years of history and tradition. I find that really beautiful.
0: Uh, What is best?
2: I don't understand the question.
0: And I won't respond to it. (laughs) That's perfectly fair. All right, John, thank you for your wisdom. Thanks.